0: again this morning glad to be preaching again as we continue through our series in 1st Timothy we're going to be in 1st Timothy chapter 5 the series is church matters we've seen quite a few different aspects when it comes to church and church living and our responsibilities and it will be no different this morning the expectation for Timothy from Paul is to lead the church, to lead the church well, and he's got some challenges. And we've seen some of those as we have progressed through the letter. And and there are going to be times in Timothy's ministry where he's going to have to command authority. He's going to have to teach the scriptures. He's going to have to get rid of false teachers. But Paul's intention for Timothy isn't just to get his way, to do his way or the highway, what Paul wants Timothy to do is understand that the church is comprised of people. And people, one of the main aspects of people, shows up in relationships and how we're going to, and how we're going to treat one another. And the overarching principle that we see not only here in 1 Timothy chapter 5, but in the book of 1 Corinthians and the book of Romans, we see the church is a body. The church is one body comprised of many members. And we see also that the church is a family. And so as Paul continues to tell Timothy how he may lead well, He wants Timothy to treat everyone with the same care that he would treat his own family. And so this is why chapter 5 begins like this. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Paul is just coming off a section to Timothy saying, hey, you're going to have to, um, there's going to be some people that might be Look down on you because you're a younger person, a younger pastor. And he says, hey, so set an example. But he also says here in these verses, but don't act harshly with those who are maybe even in the wrong. He says, treat them as family. And this is the ideal picture of a church. That we would all come together as a family, that when we walk in these doors, no matter what's going on out there, no matter who we may be related to out there, when we come in these doors, we are brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and grandmothers and grandfathers and so on. And so Paul says, Timothy, you've got to keep family in mind and family relationships in mind as you lead the church. And then the bulk of what we're going to talk about this morning comes next. The next 12 verses address widows. Address widows, some of the most vulnerable and needy uh, groups of people that the church would have been faced with, especially in the first century. And so what we're going to see is Paul's recommendations, instructions, actually, to Timothy about how he should care for these widows, remembering that we're all family. And so he starts out with verse 3 with a a simple phrase. He says, Honor widows who are truly widows. It's a simple but interesting statement. Honor widows. This word honor, it actually has a bit of a double meaning. It has this idea of a price, either paid or received. And so as time went on, this word came to refer to either honor or esteem attached to someone based on their value. Their worth. And so then from there, it could also then be attached to material or monetary support. And so we'll see next week as we get into elders, especially those who preach, they are to be given double honor, encompassing both of these realms of esteem and value for their position and maturity within the church, but also in terms of financial payment and support. And so here, as we look at uh, widows in particular, The word honor is most definitely conveying this idea of material, physical support. So Paul says, honor, support these widows, especially in the first century church, especially in terms of widows, they would have been in a position of dire need. Their husband dies, they likely didn't own property. They wouldn't have had many options to earn any sort of income. There's no idea of insurance or social security to speak of. So they would be completely dependent on the generosity of others. And what Paul lays out for Timothy is if no one helps, if the church doesn't help these widows, presumably no one will. So he says, Timothy, honor widows. And this shouldn't be a surprising statement for those of us in the church. As you read the Bible from cover to cover in the Old Testament and the New Testament alike, God expresses his care for the widow, the orphan, and the poor over and over again. A few examples, Psalm 68 5 says that God is a father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows. In Psalm 146, it says the Lord protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow. In Deuteronomy, it says cursed is he who distorts the justice due to an alien, orphan, and widow. widow." Jesus, in his ministry, had several interactions of compassion with widows. James tells us in James 1.27, This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So he says, honor widows. Simple statement, but it's also an interesting statement because here in this one sentence, he's making a distinction between widows. Is not honor widows, period, as in honor all widows, support all widows. He says support widows who are truly widows. And as we walk through this section of scripture this morning, what we actually come to find out is that Paul talks about three groups of widows. And he has different instructions for each of these groups. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're briefly going to look at these three groups. I'm just going to walk through what Paul is trying to get across to Timothy in these verses. And then once we've kind of walked through these three groups of widows, then we're going to make some applications at the end. So as we begin to open up God's Word, will you just pray with me for a moment? Dear Lord, we're thankful that we have come together to open up your word, that we can be uh, in this place or online at home, that we're here to learn and grow in your word, in the knowledge of you and your truth. Lord, I pray that you would bring clarity to your text this morning and that you would bring conviction where it's needed and bring transformation through your spirit. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So the first group of widows that we're going to come to is in verse 4. Verse 4, Paul says this, But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness in their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. So here we see instructions for widows with family. And the instructions are actually quite, quite simple. Family comes first. Children, grandchildren, your responsibility is to take care of a widow that is in your household or you're related to. He gives us three simple reasons why. Number one, it demonstrates godliness. As I was reading through a commentary in honor of Reformation Day yesterday, I thought this would be appropriate. One of the commentaries I was reading said this, How many are longing for grand spheres in which to serve God? They admire Luther at the Diet of Worms and wish they had some daring opportunity in which to exhibit Christian character. Now the apostle comes to such persons in my text, our text here this morning, and says, I will show you a place where you can exhibit all that is grand and beautiful and glorious in the Christian character. And that place is the domestic circle. Let them learn first to show piety or godliness at home. Indeed, if a man does not serve God on a small scale, he never will serve him on a large scale. I propose to speak to you of home as a test, of home as a refuge, of home as a spiritual and political safeguard, of home as a school, of home as a type of heaven. Paul says children and gan- grandchildren, family comes first. Take care of your widows as an opportunity to show and grow in godliness. And then he just goes with practical logic. And he says there's an opportunity to repay your parents. He basically would look at the children in his congregation and say, Listen, your parents brought you into this world. You were helpless. And they sacrificed to feed you, to clothe you, to sel- shelter you, to nurture you. And now that your mother has found herself in a place where she needs those same things, you should repay her in kind. So simply repay your parents by taking care of them. And then lastly, he says it pleases the Lord. For the believer, what Paul is getting at is that one's love for God cannot be separated from loving and caring for one's parents. The Lord is pleased as we love our families well. And so we should strive to especially take care of the needy in our own families. He also includes, a couple of verses later, a stark warning to any believing child who does not take this obligation seriously. Look with me at verse 8. He says, "But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever." Well, wait a minute. That sounds a little harsh. What do you mean he's worse than an unbeliever, denying the faith because he's not taking care of his widowed mother? Yes. It's similar to what Paul said in Titus. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Paul understands that even those outside of the church, and I think we can agree that in the world out there, common sense and people really just understand that, man, how you treat your family matters. And more than that, it reveals your character. It was Gandhi who said the true measure of a society is how it treats its most vulnerable members. So how much more so should the Christian who knows God treat and care for his family? And what Paul is pointing out is it's worse for Christians not to do what they know God commands. They're worse than an unbeliever because they're a hypocrite says, you're worse than an unbeliever. You've denied the faith. Don't even consider yourself a believer because you're being hypocritical if you will not take care of your own family. So the instructions for the church in caring for the widow with family is to call the family to care. Is to hold the family accountable for how they treat their, in this case, widowed Mother, if a family is not doing its job, the church is called to tell them, to speak truth, to show them that they're displaying a lack of love, love, that they're being irresponsible, that they're damaging not only their, their reputation, but the reputation of the church. The family is primarily responsible for the care of any related widows. And I think it would be fair to include widowers as well as anyone who would be in this state of vulnerability or need family comes first he then kind of capstones this section again in verse 16 if any believing woman so not to as exclude anyone has relatives who are widows let her care for them let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows And so this introduces our second group of widows. He says again in verses 5 through 7, She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God, and continues in supplications and prayers night and day, even night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead, even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. So here we have instructions for the true widow. On how the church should care for the true widow. He lays out some qualifications. Here are the qualifications. Number one, she's truly alone. She has no family to turn to for support. But more than that, she also has set her hope on God. And it's demonstrated by her commitment and faithfulness in prayer. That's found in verses 14 verses 5. And then he goes on to say in verse 6, she is not self-indulgent. She's not self-centered. She's not just looking to see what she can get from the church. So this picture of a widow, who Paul refers to as a true widow, is who the church should enroll. We're going to see this word enroll come up in in verse 9. Enroll. And the question is, well, what are they going to be enrolled in? And there's two general consensus ideas out there. The first option is that this was actually an official ministry, that there was an order or office of widow. And when a widow found herself in dire straits with no one to look after, she would go to the church, sign up for this type of service, and in return, the church would support her material needs. There's certainly some credence to this. It's certainly plausible. I probably leaned towards this interpretation until about Friday afternoon of this week. But now, a couple days later, I'm leaning more towards the really just more simple explanation that this enrollment was really just an official register or an official list that kept track of any widows in the church that they should have been supporting. It's much like what you see in Acts chapter 6. When the elders are are focused on uh, teaching and prayer, the widows are getting neglected. And so what do they do? They call some servants. Now we call them deacons to take care of the real needs of these widows. And my guess is in Acts 6 and what Paul is calling for here is they had a list. They had a list of who was a true widow that the church wants to make sure that, number one, they are supported, but number two, they're also involved in the ministry and life of the church. So whichever the case, whether it's an official order or maybe a less official list, it doesn't really matter because the overarching principle is the same. As the family is responsible for their widows first, it is the church who is primarily responsible for the care of any of these true widows. Then Paul goes on to say that just as with any person who's receiving support from the church, there's also some character considerations when it comes to these true widows. He continues in verse 9, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. Paul says we also need to consider their character. Not only that they're actually elderly, We're going to address younger widows in just a moment, but she's elderly. She's over 60 years old. And if I was just a guest, that's probably more like 80 or 85 years old in our culture today. So she's not less than 60 years of age. She has been a faithful wife. This is literally the same phrase just in the feminine form that we saw with elders and deacons. That she was a one-man woman conveying faithfulness and loyalty to her husband while he was alive. And she also has a good reputation. She's after good works. And so everything else in the list is just an explanation of what some of those good works would typically look like in the life of this woman. If she's brought up children, she's brought them up in the nurture of the Lord. She's known for hospitality and service. That's what it was talking about, washing the feet of the saints. She's cared for the sick, and she's devoted to every good work. And all of this comes together to show us that a true widow is not just any widow by circumstance that her husband has died. But no, a true widow is someone who has also demonstrated consistent godly character, both at home and in her community and within the church as well. And so Paul's expectation, his charge to Timothy is for those women, for these widows, the church needs to take care of them. Because this is the church that she is already known in. This is the church that she's already co- have been committed to. And then will be continuing in her commitment to the church. You get this picture of the church was already her family. And so now we're back to the first point where family comes first. First. And if family comes first and she doesn't have any family, here is where the church comes in. And the church now bears the responsibility as this widow's only family to support this widow in whatever way she needs. And so that's the picture, the portrait of the true widow. And then he addresses this last group of widows. He says, but refuse to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. How should the church care for younger widows? Well, this is a kind of a challenging portion of text here. Because what Paul tells Timothy is actually what the church should do to care for these younger widows is not to put them on the list. Don't perpetually support these women, these widows. Don't enroll them on the lifelong service list where they can just depend on the church. And this goes against probably our popular conception of Christian charity. Well, I thought the church is supposed to be generous to everybody. I thought the church just helps anybody that comes, then we just give and give as much as we can. Is there anything wrong with that? Well, there can be. There can be. The important lesson that I think we all need to recognize and understand, and it's true in our individual lives as well, especially for the church, is that it is possible that by helping someone, especially in terms of material things, we could be doing more harm than good. It's possible that the church, the most loving thing that the church can do, the most caring thing that the church can do is actually say no to people when they come and say, I have a need. The church is called to use discernment, to consider the things that Paul is talking about specifically here for younger widows and to gauge whether or not they can actually be helpful or what the best way is to be uh, to be a help and in here paul says don't sign them up for this list of lifelong support why why would paul seem so harsh why shouldn't the church perpetually help these young widows well it gives us two reasons in these verses that we just read number one their passions and number two their idleness there's Again, it's a little tricky of a passage, but I think we can try to put it simply. The passions that Paul is talking about here, he says, refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry. Well, is Paul saying it's wrong to get married? No. He's not. He's actually about to tell them to go get married. 1 Corinthians 7, he says, hey, you're going to follow passions. So instead of following passions into sin, you should don't burn with lust. Go get married. Paul thinks marriage is good. So then why, if they desire to marry, verse 12, so incur condemnation? Well, it doesn't have to do with marriage itself, but it has to do with the passions. And the passions have, their desires have led them away from Christ. And then they result in an abandonment to their former faith. What well, seems the worry that's on Paul's mind is that the church just perpetually supports these widows. At some point, there's going to be tension between, well, do I serve the church because they're giving me my monetary support? and But I really want to get married. So we're, now we're making a choice between the two, and then all of a sudden, the desire to marry, because it's actually a good desire, gets stronger and stronger for this young widow, but so much so that she starts to forget who she should get married to. That she's even willing to marry an unbeliever. That she would get married outside of the Lord. That she wouldn't consider what's best for her spiritual state. She would be only focused on her passions, her desires, which could result in the abandonment of her faith her turning away from christ so paul says we don't want to encourage these young widows to to follow ungodly passions he also says we don't want to encourage idleness if this young widow is put on the list of perpetual support lifelong support well what's she going to do all day and paul says well there's a danger here for idleness and if she's idle then it could lead to gossip and going from house to house and maybe falling for some of these false teachings that are creeping about the church that they're going to become busybodies that they're going to going to become uh, bring a reproach onto their name as well as the church This is such a serious thing because it's not hypothetical. Is not hypothetical because if you look at the end of verse 14, uh, we're not, we'll start with verse 14. So he's concerned. He's concerned for the widows. He's telling them, hey, beware of their passions, beware of their idleness. He is truly concerned for them, but the answer is not perpetual support. So what's the answer? This is his advice. So I would have... Younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. You see, this was the very real thing that was because it had already happened. There had been some younger wil- widows who had abandoned their faith, who had married outside of the church, that had that had left the church so they could just go be married. They've lost their souls in the process. This is what was at stake. So Paul wasn't just trying to throw young women under the bus. He was concerned deeply for their souls. He had in mind these ones that have drifted after Satan. The reputation of the church was suffering because of it. So at first glance, it may seem cruel not to support these younger widows, but Paul really does have their very best interest at heart. And I would also say that he's not imposing some sort of law that younger widows had to go and get married. I think the bigger picture is a warning against following ungodliness, of letting their flesh drive their life. And so he's really commending them to remain in the faith, to find purpose in marriage and a godly home. So that being said, we want to just transition to some applications that I think every one of us can actually take from today. But before we get there, we just need to make one more thing uh, clear. What is in view here is a lifelong, perpetual support of these widows. What Paul is not saying is that we can in no way, no shape, help anybody who does not meet the qualification of a true widow. No, I imagine, and the, church, the scripture is clear that we are to be generous, that we are, are to help meet needs. But when it comes to lifelong support, we need to be careful. But I'm sure that families, of the, the family that brings in the widow, maybe they get in a bind. They should go to the church for help. This young widow, when she loses her husband, and especially if she has young children, she's going to need the church to come help her for a time. But what the church's job is to do is to encourage them in godliness and faithfulness. To tell them that it's okay to get married, to pursue a household. And so it's okay for the church to meet needs. We have a food pantry. We, we have people come in off the street and we don't turn them away and say, no, you're not a true widow, can't help you here. That's not the picture at all. We're talking about perpetual, lifelong service. We are called to help those, anyone who we can. Sort of application. Some of you, because I was at first wondering, well, what in the world am I supposed to get from this text? Because as I look at it, this true widow category is very narrow, and in our culture today, this picture of a true widow is very unlikely. 401ks, pension, retirement accounts, insurance, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security—all these different things make it really rare that we actually have a destitute widow among us that is going to rely on the church for their support for the rest of their life. Now, if that happens in Chapel of the Lake, then we have the instructions. We know that we are to care for her. But I want us to think a little broader than just the widow church application or the church widow application, because there's certainly more to here to consider. And so briefly, I just want to have us consider three areas of care that correspond with each of these three groups of widows that we can all be active in right now. And if we would take responsibility in these three areas of care right now, I'm confident that we would be able to meet immediate needs now, but we would also be truly being the church that God desires us to be. And so understand, I'm just going to kind of briefly give you a couple of ideas. These three ideas could be whole sermon series in of themselves. I just want to maybe give you some things to think about this week as we talk about caring and applying it to our lives. There's all the things I didn't click through. Instructions for widows with family. What do I do with that? Well, you take care of your family there's a common sentiment out there. Maybe you've heard something like, give me flowers while I'm living, or give me my flowers while I can smell them. The truth that's being conveyed is that we don't have to wait for a funeral to start caring about our families. But unfortunately, it often takes tragedy to reveal our heart and care for our families. So parents, Are you fostering healthy relationships with your children? Are you modeling what true Christianity and and Christian love is? Are you praying for your children? Children, young and old alike, are you pursuing a healthy relationship with your parents? As you get older, are you making plans and provisions for the possibility of taking care of an elderly mom or dad? Would you be prepared... And able to care for your family. Because this is not a job that should be relegated to the church or the state. Now sure, we can take advantage of things like insurance and social security and and all those things. That's wisdom. The greater truth is don't abandon your family. When your family needs you, you are called to step up and be there for your family. If we would all take care of our families... It would be a lot easier for the church then to meet real needs when they arise. The last thing I want to tell you about is taking care of your family. The most sensitive piece of this is I know that there's hurt and brokenness in families within our church and certainly out in the world. You don't have to wait for the other person to make the first move towards reconciliation. If you're a believer... Your obligation is to reach out, to reach out, extend forgiveness if necessary, go apologize if necessary. I don't think there's anyone anywhere that has ever said, man, I wish we got things right a little later. I was just too soon to to patch things up with mom or dad. No one's ever said that. But there is often regret and guilt when that opportunity is gone forever. Take care of your family. Well, Instructions for the true widows. How can we apply that? Well, we make sure that we're in a position to take care of legitimate, of true needs. Think of three areas in the church that you can apply this. Number one, commit to serve where you can. I've talked about this picture of church as family and body. And you might think that, well, it's no big deal if I don't really serve. It seems like we've got plenty of people serving okay, well, we're thankful to have those people serving, but you know what the Bible says? That everyone should be serving. And it's only when everyone serves that the body can function correctly. So wherever you serve, whether it be the nursery, as an usher, as a sound guy, as a live stream people in the room today, you're actually enabling the church to meet needs where they are. Because if we aren't serving together, that means that some people have to, instead of minister to the true needs, they might be ministering to these other lesser things over here. So everyone is needed. Commit to serve where you can. And then I would say, commit to give what you can. The end of verse 16 hints at the reality that is true in so many churches. There's a limited number of resources to provide for a seemingly unlimited amount of need. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. We're called Christians are called to give generously. I think you'll want to give generously, generously, the more that you're committed and involved, understand church as family and you're in serving, and you're seeing needs being met. that will fuel your giving. And I, I do believe that we are called to give to the church first, But then we can think outside of these walls. There are some solid ministries out there doing real good work, gospel centered work, helping the most poor and vulnerable among us. And they're dependent on Christians like you and me for support so they can continue to meet needs. So we commit to give what you can. And I would also say, in this area of caring for legitimate needs, we ought to know our leaders. We ought to know our leaders because it's our leaders who are in charge of identifying the needs. There are leaders who are in charge of identifying ministry emphasis and focuses. In a month, you're going to confirm nominations for elders and deacons. You're going to approve our annual budget. This is a way for you to know our leaders and to join in the mission that we're doing here at the chapel. But you need to know us You need to know the leaders so that you can trust your leaders, that you can follow your leaders and know that our church is doing a good job, a proper job of caring for the needs around us. So commit to knowing your leaders. And lastly, when we see these instructions for the younger widows, the lesson is simple. Take care of yourself. We learn from the younger widow that it's our souls that are at stake. Beyond even your reputation or the church's reputation, our souls are at stake. Ungodly passions is not just a deal for younger widows. Temptations that happen when we become idle is not just a deal that happens with younger widows. That's a human condition. We are all prone to follow temptations, to get into trouble when we're idle. We all need to be diligent and vigilant In our pursuit of godliness. So we take heed. From the warning of the younger widow. And we also follow the example. Of the older widow. We notice that. The older widow. Didn't start her godliness. At her husband's funeral. Godliness doesn't start. In retirement. Godliness. Starts today. Hopefully it started a while ago. It can start today. It's an ongoing process and pursuit. The reputation, the character that Paul commends the true widow is something that has been lived in her life over a long period of time. She is known for her good works and her faithfulness. Now is the time to be dedicated to godliness and good works. There's a guy I really appreciate. He writes a lot. His name's Tim Chalice. He does a blog and some other things. And he has a series on great sermons and how they've impacted our culture. And um, was, he was, wrote an article about a sermon given by John Piper to 40,000 young people at a passion conference. And he's encouraged them to, to live for Jesus. And he's talking to young people. And, and in this sermon, he describes the fate of two women in his church. And they were older. They were both nearing their 80s. One was a a nurse. The other was a, a single woman who had committed just to help the sick and needy. And they had partnered up and they had gone to Cameroon to serve the sick and the poor. But one day, as they were driving through the mountains, brakes went out. They went over a cliff to their immediate death. And he says that he was faced with his congregation asking the question Is this a tragedy? And he had primed the crowd to basically yell back, no. They knew in their hearts that no, a life of service to Christ is not a wasted life. But then he says, it's not a tragedy. And then he reads them. He says, I'll read you what a tragedy is. And he pulls out a page from the Reader's Digest. And he reads it to them. The title of the article, Start Now, Retire Early, written February of 1998. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30 foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. He says, that's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. That there's people in our country spending billions and billions of dollars to get you to buy this lie of the American dream of getting stuff, a nice house, a nice car, a nice job, all of these things. And then he says this in his sermon. You do all these things, including collecting shells as the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account with what you did. Here it is, Lord. Here's my shell collection. Look, Lord, my shell collection. And I've got a good swing and look at my boat. That's a tragedy, he tells the crowd, and I would agree. He ended that sermon or in that sermon, how we'll end today, with just a short rhyme written by a guy named C.T. Studd. He says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Yes, the instructions are here for widows and how the church is to treat the widows, but it's so much bigger than that. We are called to act now in how we care for each other, our families, within this church, and our pursuit of godliness. And we don't have to wait till tomorrow. That can start today. Will you pray with me? Dear Lord, we're thankful. We're thankful that you are our sustainer, that nothing we do for you is wasted, and that only what's done for Christ will last. Lord, I pray that we've all been challenged by this text, that we would not only look to the widows among us, but we look to the needy, the widower, the poor, the orphan. Lord, that our church would be marked with compassion for any of those in need. That we would be wise, that we would seek what's best for the people around us, that we would encourage one another in godliness, in their faithful pursuit of you. It's in your name we pray, amen.